morning. morning. It is great to be with you all again. It's been a while since I've been with you all in chapel. I had uh, two sisters graduate from different school. One of them graduated uh, cum laude, one of them graduated magna cum laude. Another sister graduated from here, graduated cum laude, and I graduated 2014, thank the Lord. So (laughs) (laughs) I grew up in Cameroon, as most of you probably know. And, but I always say that I really grew up spiritually here at BCM and then through the seminary. And I had the opportunity in 2015 to go on the missions trip to Cameroon and the opportunity to lead a church planning team. An opportunity that I wasn't expecting. I was expecting to be underneath one of the national pastors. I'll tell you a quick story there. We walked to the first village. There was a man there. His name was Peter. And we witnessed to him and was kind of resistant to the gospel. And throughout through that week, he was there the whole week. And... Really didn't, I don't think he ever came to the services. The next week, we walked to the next village, and guess who's there? It was Peter. He, he's a man who travels for his work cutting down trees, and he happened to be that same village we're going to the next week. Well, when we walked to that second village, no one wanted us there. The, per, the chief was gone. The second person in charge was gone. The third person in charge was totally drunk and really had no coherence to him about him whatsoever. So I was discouraged, our team was discouraged. I was trying to find an excuse to leave until one man came in, his name was John, really a person of peace for that village, and he was the reason we stayed. He welcomed us and showed us, found us a place to stay. We spent the week there, and we stayed in the village because of him. But during that time when I was discouraged, I began to pray and ask God to bring Pastor Ernest, who was in another village about four to five hours away. I asked the Lord to bring him to our village to encourage our team. And the next morning, Pastor Ernest walked into the village and was there with us that entire day, you know, getting us through that, start out, the starting out with that church plant there. That evening, I wanted him to preach. He said, Daniel, you're the leader. You need to preach. So I preached a gospel message. There were a few people that were saved that night. But while I was preaching, Pastor Ernest was out in the village, walking up and down the pitch black. He told me later that he was out there praying for me as I preached. And honestly, I can say that probably that's, in preaching the gospel, that's probably the most freedom I've ever had in my entire life in preaching the gospel that, that evening. And Pastor Ernest was also specifically praying for Peter, because in the second village, Peter would come to the service every single night. And Pastor Ernest had known Peter previously. So Pastor Ernest was specifically praying for him to get saved. He didn't get saved that night, but that week, he was one of those that was saved and was baptized at the end of that week. That's really, every single day we saw answers to prayer like that. That's what God's doing over there. That's what God can do, wants to do through each one of us. I'm not the perfect missionary, missionary person. I struggled through BCM. I had a lot of problems, had a lot of issues, but God worked. And it's called me back to the mission field. Really, it's a step of faith that each one of us has to take. There was a man in the late 1700s, a, a preacher, a Baptist preacher, at a meeting one day with a bunch of Baptist, Baptist preachers. He began to challenged the others about the need for worldwide missions. Another minister stood up and said, young man, sit down, you're an enthusiast. When God chooses, pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. We know the story of William Carey and his passion for, for missions, worldwide missions. He wrote the book, An Enquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of Heathens basically saying we have an obligation to fulfill the Great Commission in our day. 
And he says this, multitudes sit at ease and give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinners who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry. But Carey didn't stop there. In 1792, he organized a mission society, and a year later, he was the first missionary sent out. There's another missionary in North Africa in 1925 to 1960, C.S. Marsh. There was one day he was walking into a village, a Muslim village. He worked with an unreached Muslim tribe. And he walked in the village, and uh, one person walked up to him and said, Missionary, how would you like to have one meal a year? The missionary replied, said, well, that would be, that would be rather difficult. The man said, you know, that's, that's what it's like for us. You come here once a year to our villages to preach the gospel. We hear the truth of God's word once a year, and that's it. We're starving for the truth. On the screen behind me, you'll see a map of each one of those red dots indicate where one of those unreached people groups is located. That's the lost world. That's the lost worlds. The next slide, unreached people group. What is an unreached people group? A people group among which there is no indigenous community of believing Christians with adequate numbers and resources to evangelize this people group without outside assistance. That's what we're up against, that big dot. And then the next slide here, all unreached people groups, there's 6,685 total in the world today. That is a population of over 3.1 billion people. That's 42.1% of the world's population are going to be born, they're going to live their life, and they're going to die. And most of them will never have once an opportunity to hear the gospel. What about the Nai? On the next slide, the Nai of India, 12.1 million people, entirely Hindu, 0.0% Christian. What about the Aho Lang of Thailand, a smaller group, 900 people, 0.0% Christian. What about the Fulani of West Africa? 38 million people approximately, less than 2% Christian. And that's where, like Pastor mentioned, my wife and I are heading there to work with them. They're spread across 19 West African countries, as you see on the next map. As far as I know, from what I can tell, there's no fundamental Baptist missionaries specifically working with them as part for my family. They are, to be Fulani is to be Muslim. They are totally open to missionaries coming in and giving them the gospel, for the most part. They want us there as American missionaries. They're not against us. They love America. And it's wide open, so why aren't we reaching them? Yes, they'll face persecution if they trust them. If one of their own trusts in Christ, they'll face persecution. But with a wide open door and 38 million people, majority of them totally lost. There's a problem with that. But about the country of Bhutan, and I hardly know where that country is, but it's on the east, northeast corner of India. There's 72 unreached people groups in that country alone. Small country, totally landlocked, population of 750,000 people, entirely Buddhist. That picture up there on the top right is a temple, Buddhist temple. It's located where they say that the second reincarnation of Buddha took place. 
entirely Buddhist there, totally closed country. Christians face persecution and imprisonment if they're found to be Christian in that country. What about the four largest false religions in the world? Islam, Hinduism, ethnic religions, and Buddhism, in that order. Next slide, Islamic people, 3,494 people groups. Over 1.7 billion people. It's 23.4% of the world's population. The map shows where they're located, really all over, basically all over the world. What about the next people group, Hinduism? 2,221 unreached people groups around the world. One, almost 1.2 billion people. 15.8% of the world's population. And the map shows where they're located, mostly there in India. What about ethnic religions? 2,665 people groups. And that would include animism, spirit worship, ancestral worship. And the next map shows where they're located, really all over the world again. I don't think those dots even represent where they're all located. They're in Central Africa. There's many, many more, I believe. What about Buddhism? 619 people groups, 381 million people. That's, compare that with the population of the U.S. That's just over the population of the United States. Imagine the United States without one gospel-preaching church. Imagine the United States. You travel across it, and there's no opportunity to hear the word of God. And the map shows where they're located, mostly there in Southeast Asia. On the other hand, look at this, Christianity. People groups claiming Christianity, 7,057. It's over almost 2.5 billion people. And in that number, there's 1.2 billion that are Catholics. And this other number, this number would include anybody who claims to be Christian. 33.1% of the world's population. Research done in 2011 says that 13.1% on the next slide of Christians are evangelicals. What I mean by evangelicals, anybody who has some form of the gospel, include Pentecostals, include any stripe of Christianity that has the gospel. Obviously, people that we would not associate with are included in there. That makes comes out to 4.3% of the world's population is evangelical, that has, actually has a clear form of the gospel in some form. Now this number, I pulled it out of the air. If one quarter of evangelicals, it's probably not even that high. If one quarter of evangelicals are fundamental Baptists, that's less than 1.1% of the world's population. That's probably not that high. So the problem with this picture isn't there. We've been given a command, a great commission, and yet less than 1.1% of the world's population are saved and has correct doctrine from the scriptures. Truth is, we often sit here in America and we feast on our spiritual food. We go to Bible college, we fill our knowledge with the scripture we know it inside and out, but yet there's billions of people out there that don't even have one opportunity ever in their lifetime to hear the Word of God. Turn your Bible to Acts 28 and try to keep you awake this morning. I know you're all really tired. I understand. I've been there myself many times. I've been to the governor's mansion late at night. Can't stay awake in chapel or any class the next day. And those of you who are with, with me in class know that I'm not lying. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. 
and I'm going to be turning to a lot of different passages here, so I'll try to keep you awake with that. Eight, verse 18, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me, in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the worlds. Next slide here shows really the simplicity of the Great Commission. It's very simple. Simple as one, two, three. There's one command. That's to make disciples of all ethnic groups. That's the command. There's two assurances that surround this command. We have Christ's authority and Christ's presence. And I'll talk about that a little bit more later. And then there's three tasks. Go, make disciples, go, baptize, and teach to obey all things. Three tasks. So one command, make disciples. Two assurances, Christ's authority, Christ's presence, and you have three tasks. Go, baptize, and teach all nations. So with that in mind, turn to the book of Acts. We're going to illustrate here what happened with that great commission in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 47. Acts 2, verse 47. And we know the story, what, ha- what led up to this verse. The disciples were there in Jerusalem. They're praying. They're praying for the promise that Jesus had promised them, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had already ascended to heaven. They were there waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. So Acts chapter 2, we know the story of Pentecost. The Spirit came down and dwelt them, and they went out speaking in different languages, preaching the gospel. And how many were saved? There were 3,000. And the church was started. So verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So the Lord added to the church daily. Now turn to Acts, over to Acts chapter 6. Look at verse number 1. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied... So we're going to do a little bit of a comparison here with, the next, with this, these two verses and the one in Acts chapter 9. There's three verses here I'd like to compare. Turn to Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. So Acts chapter 2, you see disciples were added to the church. In Acts chapter 6, you see disciples were multiplied in the church. In Acts chapter 9, you see churches were multiplied. And we, ha- we hear this progression all the time here, so I'm not going to go into in depth. But what took place from addition to multiplication? Go to Acts chapter 1. Sorry, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death. At that time, there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So in Acts chapter 2, when those 3,000 people were saved, it was the apostles that were doing the work, right? They were the ones preaching the gospel. And they saw those 3,000 saved, a mighty work of God, one that we would love to see today. In Acts chapter 6, we see disciples were multiplied there in Jerusalem. What took place from there? to the verse in Acts chapter 9, was that disciples were scattered everywhere. Right there in Acts chapter 8. They were scattered everywhere except the apostles, right? They stayed in Jerusalem. 
And everyone else went and preached the gospel everywhere else. But in Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 11, verse number 19. Now when they, now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. What is the church of Antioch known for? Number one, we know believers were first called Christians there because they were acting like little Christ. Number two, it's known as the first missionary sending church. They sent out Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey there. Who started that church? Ordinary believers from church in Jerusalem who were scattered because of the persecution. They went to Antioch, obeying the Great Commission, and a church was started. People were sent out of that church, and much of the world was reached because of that, because an ordinary believer went and obeyed. Go to Acts chapter 17, verse number 1. Now this chapter here took place on Paul's second missionary journey. He was traveling through what is now known as Turkey, going to the west. He tried to go into Bithynia, tried to go a couple of other places, but the Holy Spirit hindered him. And what did he do? He kept going, didn't he? He kept going wherever the Lord allowed him to go. A side note there, sometimes in ministry we see closed doors. Sometimes in ministry the Holy Spirit stops us from going in a certain direction. You know, often it's easy for us as believers to say, oh, that door is closed. That means God is not calling me into ministry. That means God is not directing me to go that way. And so I'm going to sit here and do nothing because I can't go that way. What did the Apostle Paul do? Yes, he obeyed the Holy Spirit and didn't go that direction because God closed the door, but he still kept going. He kept going and didn't stop obeying the Great Commission. So Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was the synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, preached went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. And some of them believed. The Apostle Paul went there, preached for somewhere between two and three weeks, and then was run out of town because of persecution. What happened there in that city? You don't hear much more in the book of Acts, so turn to First Thessalonians chapter 1. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse number 6. It explains here what happened to that church in Thessalonica after the Apostle Paul left. Verse number 6. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. The Apostle Paul was there for a couple weeks. He preached the gospel, saw people saved, planted church, and left. And yes, he continued to come back to disciple them. Later on in his third missionary journey, he came back, took a couple of the leaders with him on his journey, 
continue to disciple them. And later on, we even hear of one of the leaders of that church actually in prison in Rome with the Apostle Paul. So Paul, he did continue to disciple them. But what does he say here? As we need not to speak anything, verse number nine, verse number eight, sorry. The Great Commission was complete in that area of the world. And that's your question. Did the Apostle Paul tell everybody the gospel in that whole region? No. Who did? It was the ordinary believers who were saved when the Apostle Paul came through. They went everywhere preaching the word. That entire region heard the gospel. And Paul says, we need not to speak anything. It was complete. His job was done. Turn now to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, verse 23. But now having no more place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come unto you. So Paul's writing to the Romans, telling them, my job here is done. I'm going to come through Rome and then I'm going to go on, and you're going to send me on to Spain so I can go finish my job over there. The Great Commission was completed. He obeyed to the point that his job was entirely done in that part of the world. What was his job? To preach the gospel, right? He wasn't a pastor. And yes, he stayed in places sometimes for a couple of years at a time. To disciple people, that wasn't his job. His job wasn't to pastor. His job was to fulfill the Great Commission. And that's what he did. He completed it. So this passage, we see how individuals obeyed the Great Commission, and it was completed in their regions. So the point I'd like to make, get across today that you need to go away with is this. The Great Commission was given to each individual Christian. Therefore, each individual Christian has a responsibility to seek to fulfill the Great Commission in our generation. Let's say that again. The Great Commission was given to each individual Christian. And therefore, each individual Christian has a responsibility to seek to fulfill that Great Commission in your generation. And if we're not obeying this, we're really no better than the minister who stood up and told Carrie to sit down because he expected somebody else to go. Often we sit here waiting for God to tell us to do something when he's already told us to go, right? And if we don't obey, we're no better than that minister who's saying God will send somebody else. This is God's plan for our lives. God's plan requires that every individual believer see their place in that plan and seek in every way possible to fit into that plan, fulfill their part. You know, God in his mercy and love has and is working throughout man, throughout history, to bring people back to himself so that they can fulfill their God-given purpose in why he created them, the glory of God. His plan for this dispensation, the church age, is to use individual believers to fulfill the Great Commission, to bring people to salvation so that they too can glorify God. Simplified a little, we say this. God wants us to replenish the earth with people who will fulfill the purpose for which they were created to glorify God. This is done by us obeying the God-given command for our dispensation, the Great Commission, and by teaching those we reach to do the same. The problem is that many of us do not see our place in God's plan, and so we're not obeying. Some of you out here realize that God's called you into ministry. 
but you're going to go out and graduate, and you're going to get a job, and you're going to wait. Say, God, send me somewhere. You're going to wait for God to send you a Macedonian vision when he has already told us to make disciples. Some of you out here, maybe you're actively resisting God's plan for your life. You can't wait till Christmas break to get here so you can get out of under authority. Maybe some of you seniors out here, I know, I was there. You can't wait till you graduate so you don't have a rule book to follow anymore so you can go do your own thing. So you can fulfill your plan for your life. Instead of seeking to fit into God's plan under authority right now in BCM so that one day you can fit into God's plan outside of BCM. You know those numbers in the wall back there? To us, they're just numbers, right? They're statistics. You're never going to see probably any of those people that are up there. But what are they to God? The individual people who he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for. And us as believers, we're failing to go reach them. And those individual people out there that Jesus Christ died for are never, ever in their lifetime, from the time they're born to the time they die, ever going to hear the gospel unless we go tell them. At least we say, this is God's plan for my life. I will fulfill God's plan for my life. I will go reach them. And where does it start? Right here. The Great Commission, what is it? It's very simple. One command, to make disciples of all nations. Two assurances. When we fulfill God's plan for our life, he promises us his authority. And to end with this illustration, we'll be done. Imagine with me that God has called you to be a missionary in the country of Saudi Arabia. If you go there, you're probably not going to live very long, are you? If you're out boldly preaching the gospel. Imagine with me that you somehow get in contact with a king. You become friends with him and he tells you, you can go anywhere in my nation, you can preach the gospel. He gives you a piece of paper with his signature on it. Tells you, tells you, you have my entire authority to go wherever you want in my country and preach the gospel. What would you do with that? Wouldn't you go do it? You have the authority. Now imagine with me, the king tells you, that's not good enough. People might not respect my piece of paper with my signature on it. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go with you everywhere you go to preach the gospel. I will be there beside you. And if people see me beside you, they can't touch you because they know I'm right here. Wouldn't you want to go do that? We have God's authority right here. It's all there. What's more than that? He's with us. He promises that when we go, we have his authority, and he's with us. What more do we want? But instead we sit here, say, God, send me somewhere, but we're not going. Now, I understand we're all busy in school. We can't go to the mission field while we're in school. I understand you're in your finals week of the nine-week block. You don't have time to probably even get an hour in soul winning, maybe. 
I've been there. But what is the Great Commission? How do you fit into that Great Commission? What is God's plan for your life? So number one, steps we need to take. Obey right here. Number two, say, Lord, I will fit into your plan however you see fit. I will surrender to go anywhere. Whether it be to stay here at BCM for the rest of my life, 10 years, however long it takes to graduate, or I'm surrendering to be a missionary. I will go to one of those people groups. I will make sure one of those are represented at the throne of God one day. Those are three decisions. Obey right here, surrender to go anywhere, or perhaps God wants you to surrender right now to be a missionary. Pastor. Pastor.